pods be ever in your favor? <laughs> Welcome to the 104th Film is Lit Games. This is episode 104. Hunger Games, what is that? Is that 12.30 on any given day? Because <laughs> it's lunchtime. <laughs> Welcome to the Film is Lit podcast, the pod where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. My name is Danny, he, him, the self-appointed film expert. And I'm Laura, she, her, the self-appointed lit expert. And our theme song is done by Before Jane, our good friend Noah. He is the master behind that band, so please look up Before Jane. Thanks, Noah. Thanks, Noah. Another disclaimer, full, full spoilers. So we're spoiling everything in the book, everything in the movie. Today, our selection is The Hunger Games. Chances are you've seen it. (laughs) It's not a small independent film. And it's also not a new movie. It just came out over 10 years ago. Yeah? 11. Whoa. That's nuts. But I do have a good story about how this is kind of an independent movie with a big budget attached to it. It, Uh it, Because it's not produced by one of the the big six studios. Um, Yeah. So interesting little story there. If you haven't read or seen The Hunger Games and you don't want to know anything about it, Stop listening, come back after you've consumed those stories. Also, we'll try just to talk about the first book and first movie, although some spoilers for the two other books and three other movies might creep in. Right. You have been warned. I was going to say that too. Yeah, but we'll try to stick to those films. Right. Today we're covering the first one, The Hunger Games, by Suzanne Collins, published in 2009. And the movie, which was adapted three years later, released on March 23rd, 2012, directed by Gary Ross. Yeah. You might recognize Gary Ross's name. He directed Pleasantville. A fun... Have not seen that. Seabiscuit? You know, maybe Clips. I feel like that was such an Oscar contender. It was on TV all the time, and I must have caught clips of it, but not the whole thing, I don't think. Yeah, it's a good movie. I remember seeing it when it came out. That's uh, based on a parents. book. We could cover Seabiscuit. Ooh. Yeah. Potential future episode. You heard it here first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This was a book and movie that caught the world by storm. If you're listening to this, you already know it, but it was all the rage, especially yeah. in America. Before we get into our personal journeys, let's go over a brief synopsis so we don't have to retell the plot for the rest of the episode. So we know that this takes place in a dystopia set in North America. Mm -hmm. And there's been a rebellion about 75 years or so ago, 70 years ago. And all of the land has been sectioned up into 13 districts. Yeah. And as a reminder of the crushed rebellion. Yeah, penance. Right, in penance. The capital, which is apparently set in a like Denver area of Colorado, holds the annual Hunger Games where they choose a boy and a girl from each of the 12 districts. And they are supposed to fight to the death. And they these kids from each district are eligible between like 12 and 18 to be quote unquote reaped 
that's something I definitely want to talk about is the sci-fi language that Suzanne Collins created for this universe. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan. Yeah. Uh, so every year, a boy and a girl from each of the districts are reaped, and then they are sent to the capital to compete in the annual Hunger Games, fight to the death until there's one kid or teen alive, and then basically for the rest of their life, they turn into mentors for the subsequent reaping. Yes. Tributes. Mm-hmm. So that's basically it. I will start with my journey. So this was definitely huge. I know that there are certainly still phenomenon these days with young folks, but as far as when we were growing up, it was like Harry Potter, Twilight, Hunger Games. Yeah. And those are still pretty heavy hitters. Obviously, I do not like Twilight. (laughs) So I would say when I was growing up, Harry Potter was like number one in terms of influence on my life. But then when Hunger Games came out, I think we had aged very appropriately into this dystopian young adult series. And I was really compelled. I remember reading all three and really, really liking all three at the time. Looping back now, I'm surprised at how much I remember from book one, Mm. but then books two and three, because I ended up reading all of the trilogy for this recording just out of curiosity. I was like, damn, I really don't remember what takes place. I remember very clearly reading the books. I just really don't remember if I saw the movies in the theater. Mm. I have a feeling I saw the first one because... It was just such a big deal. And yeah. and what did we have to do when we were freshmen in high school? Like, I, like we went to movies a lot, I think. Third yeah. Street Promenade AMC for me the, was the, like the, yeah, the, the book, spot. book came out when we were freshmen and then the movie was senior year. So this was oh, like... Oh, 2012. This was That's with right. us throughout yeah. all of high school. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember really clearly this was just a phenomenon along with Harry Potter and Twilight. Yeah. Although Twilight just never... I never got on the Twilight train. We'll see if we... <laughs> go back and <laughs> cover Twilight book oh, two. Oh, we on will, Spider Monkey. We will. <laughs> but the funny thing is that I, I remember being really into this. And about this time, Facebook was also becoming big. Mm-hmm. And so I remember very clearly going and liking a bunch of Hunger Games pages. Oh, yeah. And exploring this. Remember that when we liked pages for right. like movies or Yeah, you, you like listed you listed your interests on Facebook and stuff like that. Yeah. So clearly Hunger Games has endured longer than Facebook. I don't think anyone else is on Facebook other than me now. But <laughs> so so a fun you little and anecdote. All of our parents. Right. A fun little anecdote that I have is that when I was on one of those pages, I found this interesting post that said if you took a quiz, because that was also a huge thing when we were in high school, was taking quizzes to find out yep. what Harry Potter house you belong to, etc. Hufflepuff? Ravenclaw. <laughs> um, so I took this quiz and as a kind of reward or something, basically it would sort you into what district you would be in. And then it actually sent you a plastic card that was like an ID card. Mm. And the, the cool thing was too, like you, this is, this is naive me, like I'm sure my data is floating around somewhere in the ethers, but you also got to put a picture on your ID. And so it came and it literally looked Whoa. like a school ID, one of those plastic little things. And I got it in the mail. Like it was, it was one of those things cool. where it was probably like nowadays I would 
never give up my information like that, let alone upload a photograph of myself, you know? And I'm sure like nowadays too, that's the kind of thing you do that. And then the card never comes. Like it's a scam to get your information. But Mm. for some reason, like maybe it was a movie promo. Maybe it was just someone who had a card printer, (laughs) but like I got this cool little card in the mail and I don't have any memory exactly of where I got sorted, but I, I feel like it was the wheat district and when I looked it up online, I think it was District 9. Yep, so, green. Yep. Green, right? Okay, green. So I did look for my little ID, and I couldn't find it at my parents' house, but I'm going to try to keep looking for it, because I remember, I don't think I would have gotten rid of it, because it was really cool, and I'll try to post a picture of it. And if anyone else <laughs> did that quiz online and has a little Hunger Games ID, like, let me know, because that was really cool. I can't believe I actually got that cool little ID. I didn't get an ID, but I know I'm District 8, which is textiles. Oh, so we, <laughs> if we had been reaped, we probably would have been battling. That's true. Because we wouldn't have been from the same. But anyway, so I I was really into this. I don't think it ever achieved like Harry Potter status obsession for me. Mm. But now going back and rereading it, I was really pleasantly surprised because, and also I think I owe Suzanne Collins an apology because I said multiple times on this podcast that Red Rising was like the adult version or what I wished Hunger Games was as an adult. Mm. But honestly, like, this book definitely holds its own. It's a little bit angsty. I'll give you that. Mm-hmm. And there are some things that I think are very cliche in terms of like the undefeatable female protagonist. And the love triangle, which apparently was forced upon Suzanne Collins by the publisher. So, right. So that's another thing that is very angsty yeah. and a little bit silly. But overall, this is really tense the stakes can't get higher. Yeah. And I think for a three book series, like for example, let's take Twilight again as an example. That book has nothing to say in terms of (laughs) substance. And the fact that there are so many books in that series and the fact that they're so long is really trashy in my brain. It's it's trashy teen fiction, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, sure. This, while it has some features that are teen angsty it's still very interesting and stimulating to read as an adult so So, compelling and 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 yeah and it and it earns its three book arc really well after finishing mockingjay and now we actually have a prequel that's come out and now the movie of the prequel is coming out i haven't read the book yet but i feel compelled enough to read the prequel after finishing book three. Yeah. Why do you think we're releasing this now, babe? It's strategic. That was that was you, because I, I didn't realize the movie was coming out. I'd heard about the book, but I actually had no idea that there was a movie coming out. So anyway, that's, that's kind of a long-winded journey, but that's about it for me. Awesome. So my journey starts in second grade. <laughs> um, so there's... <laughs> A movie that played on cable a lot, which was the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, The Running Man, which takes place in a dystopian future and it's where adults battle it out gladiator style in different arenas. I don't think I've heard of that. Apparently, it's a bad movie. It got terrible reviews when it came out and it's not highly regarded online. But as a kid, you're not a, you don't have any reference for movie qualities mm-hmm. or outside reviews. I wasn't reading Roger Ebert in second grade. Mm-hmm. I barely knew how to read. <laughs> so in my mind, with my nostalgia glasses on, 
I love The Running Man, and I think it's mm. a great movie. I don't want to revisit it because I'm sure it doesn't hold up. Sure. But it is what it is. And then in 2007, there was a direct-to-DVD movie, direct-to-DVD, not Blu-ray, DVD, mm. yeah, right. <laughs> called The Condemned. That is a terrible movie, but my friend Frank Fay and I saw the trailer for it online at it stars Stone Cold Steve Austin, <laughs> Oscar winner. No, I'm kidding. Um, and that movie is about a bunch of convicts who battle it out on an island, uh, and whoever wins, the last person remaining, gets their freedom. That's the sure. whole uh, crux of it. Do you think direct-to-DVD movie The Condemned made the transition to Blu-ray? For The Condemned, I don't. I don't think it was a big enough movie to be honest but we'll see so I'm gonna look it up <laughs> i'm just curious it did whoa okay. 10.03 on amazon and three dollars on ebay 10 yeah. people will fight nine will die yeah <laughs> <laughs> i distinctly remember being so disappointed by that film you know 2007 we were in seventh grade i knew of the concept of straight to dvd movies but I thought like that would be the exception to the rule, like it would actually be good. And but mm. no, it, it, there was a reason why it wasn't released in theaters. It had a deceivingly low budget. But still, the concept of the most dangerous game, right? Humans hunting humans, fighting gladiator style, that is endlessly compelling. So when this book came out, when we were in freshman year in high school, I already came to it with this sour attitude because I'm like, it's just ripping off The Running Man and The Condemned. <laughs> sure. Like, like, what the hell? And the thing is, yes, it's taking that idea, but Suzanne Collins creates her own new, fresh world. Yeah. And does something else with it that, that's really novel in her novel. Right. <laughs> and it's fun and endlessly compelling. I mean, this is the ultimate stakes. Exactly. I think... Squid Game owes everything to The Hunger Games and, of course, The Running Man, too. But... <laughs> Squid Games owes everything to The Running Man and The Condemned. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But, I mean... <laughs> well said. That's why The Squid Game was a phenomenon, too. And this kind of explains why the Romans did what they did in their society that was flourishing of ultimate power and no checks and balances there. It's just... there's It taps into something in our caveman brain that the ultimate thrill cave person cave person brain the <laughs> ultimate thrill of watching humans fight you know, it's just again so much stakes it is pure unadulterated drama and then the added layer in the hunger games of katniss volunteering to compete in the game so her sister wouldn't go that adds an extra layer of drama of stakes you like katniss more and it's a really fleshed out world. So I love the book. I remember reading it on a road trip oh, that's to a family gathering in 2009. And then 2012, I went to the midnight screening of The Hunger Games with my girlfriend at the time. You know what? I wonder if I did the same thing too, because I had some really close friends that did the Harry Potter movie screenings. And I, I feel like I did the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, that's ringing a bell. That's cool. Yeah, although I remember just being so tired, both watching it that night, because it was a school night, too. Sure. We had school the next day, and I was used to going to bed at 10 p.m., because I you know, also had sports, too. The movie started at, like, 11.50 p.m. Mm. We got out of there a little after 2, then had to go to school at 6 a.m. the next Oof. day. I just remember being so 
exhausted. Yeah. But it it was fun. Yeah. And also, since the book came out our freshman year and the movie came out senior year, basically all throughout our high school experience, we kept tabs on the production, the making of The Hunger Games, because it was so highly publicized. Nowadays, every movie is highly publicized, but this was more or less the start. You know, internet, the Twitter, the Twitter X now, was really becoming huge, and so... I remember the casting for Katniss was a big deal. Or like, who who they're gonna cast? Who they're gonna cast? Reportedly, two thousand actresses auditioned oh, for this role, and it came down to Jennifer Lawrence and Saoirse Ronan. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Of course, Saoirse Ronan would have killed this part, but it went to Jennifer Lawrence. And at the time, so I remember being slightly disappointed with the film when I, when I first saw it because I had this vision in my head of what it would be, one of, like one of my favorite books being adapted and the movie was not what was in my head. I also remember not being a huge fan of J-Law's mm-hmm. performance. Mm-hmm. Now I can appreciate the fact that she's not really emoting and keeping a, a stone face the whole time because that's part of her character. She has gone through so much trauma that she has taught herself never to show any vulnerability to anyone in her life. So her subdued, emotionless, <laughs> some would say, performance makes a little bit more sense to me. It's something to discuss, I think. Yeah. I, I have it's not some perfect. issues. It's not perfect, but yeah, we can get into that a little bit later. She was 22 when she was filming, and she's supposed to be playing, according to the book, she's supposed to be like 16. Right. So it's, I think... This is something that movies do a lot, is they age up people. But I think she does an okay performance as a teen. Yeah. Yeah, like very angsty. Yeah, I was really excited to rewatch the movie for this episode because I realized I hadn't watched it since senior year of high school. I think same, yeah. And it's not because I was avoiding it or didn't like it. I just, that's what happens in life. Sometimes you just don't watch a movie that you like. And... This has been on the schedule for a while. It seems like a no-brainer to cover the Hunger Games on a podcast that compares the books to the movies, but we're finally getting around to it. Episode 104, this is exciting. So let's get to the analysis. Laura, what's the first thing that you want to discuss? Well, the first thing that I thought about when I started doing research and what I wanted to talk about in this episode was... Just a general discussion about why dystopian novels are really compelling. Because sure. they always, for the most part, they always are. I, I, I think they're super interesting. And as much as I'm not a huge sci-fi fairy tale genre fan, dystopian novels are very interesting to me. So mm-hmm. I was kind of Googling around and trying to figure out why... They're so compelling. And I think part of the reason this book is successful as a young adult lit piece is because something that dystopian novels do really well is that they provide an outlet to examine our values as a society and also personal values mm-hmm. and like your fears, your desires, and how to identify what's 
what's injustice in your world and how to fight it. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons that that in particular is a very successful way of approaching a young adult literature piece is because that is very heightened when you're a teen. Yeah. And I think, again, like reflecting the time and sort of the psychological development that you're going through during this time, like if you think about it, this book reflects exactly what you want to push back at as a teen, especially when you're under the control of adults. And that's what Katniss is like constantly battling is these terrible, privileged adults that use children to their ultimate entertainment. Mm -hmm. So I think that specifically is why not only is it really compelling as a teen, but also why I think as we've aged into adulthood, some of these things feel a little bit like immature. And I think one of the things that is, that feels immature, but again, makes sense why it's so successful as a teen adult, as a teen series, is like this whole series is written from Katniss's first perspective. And it gets a, she to me gets a little bit annoying, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, but again, it's like, she's trying to represent this teen angst that can't win mm-hmm. until she only starts to rely on herself, you right. know? So that's kind of one of those things that made me realize like from a meta perspective, why this was compelling for me as a teen but not so much as an adult in some ways i still think the stakes are really high and one of the reasons i think it's still successful for me as an adult is the world building and the language that suzanne collins introduces so like i love the reaping Mm -hmm. how scary is that yeah Later in Catching Fire, we learn that every, I think, 25 years, they call it a quarter quell, Mm. which is like they introduce a twist to the Hunger Games. And so in Catching Fire, it's like the only pool of tributes that they pull from are people who've already been a tribute. The idea that there's a quarter quell, like that type of language is so world building and cool. And another one is the tesserae. So that means that, and I, I love this concept that if you are from a poorer district and you need something like food because you don't, you can't make enough money to buy food for yourself, you can basically wager your name multiple times in that drawing, in the reaping. Yeah. So I love that. Like that, and the, the word tesserae is really cool. Yeah. And that's something that's not explained in the movie uh, Katniss, yeah, they introduce Katniss, it kind of, but yeah. Katniss asks Gale how many times his name is put in, and uh, he says 41, and you don't really understand where that's coming. And later on, Gale kind of explains he asked for more food, so that's why his name is in there so many times. But yeah, it's not... The world building isn't there as much as it is in the book. However, a reason why I like the movie adaptation so much is that... It retains a lot of that compelling concept and some of the world building while still being a streamlined. Yeah. Easy breezy. Not easy breezy, but uh, it flows nicely. No, an example of that too is how Katniss gets her Mockingjay pin. So, and speaking of the Tesserae, like there's this kind of 
privileged for District 12 girl in the book mm-hmm. who is anxious about being a tribute, which also is another cool language yeah. used by Suzanne Collins. But like Katniss runs into her and, and she gives her this Mockingjay pin for luck. And she's like, you know, I'm really anxious about being selected. And Gail makes a comment like, oh, well, you know, you your family doesn't have to do Tesserae. So like your name is only in there once. And that's kind of deleted from the movie. And I think it's just one of those things that's, that's simplified and streamlined. Like we don't need that character. That character kind of comes back a little bit in book two. Mm-hmm. But in kind of a subplot so it's not super important and they do they tend to like push through the the plot line really yeah seamlessly i I think this movie really cooks it really moves yeah and if it was released today it's funny to say if it was released today since it only came out 11 years ago but i feel like if it was released today it would be one of two things either a about 160 minutes long Mm. Or it would be a 10-episode miniseries on Netflix. Yeah. And I hate both these trends because movies are getting a little too bloated these days. Whereas The Hunger Games, this film is a perfect example of how you can pretty much adapt a book one for one and keep it approximately 140 minutes. Whereas if it was a 10-episode miniseries, so there's this director out there called Mike Flanagan who has directed a few incredible miniseries, The Haunting of Hill House, Midnight Mass. He has another one coming out called The Fall of House Usher. The Fall of the House of Usher, that, which is a short story, mm. so we can cover that. But my problem with these series is that I just don't have 10 hours Mm. to watch all this stuff. And I'm not saying that like, oh, I'm so busy. I need to utilize my time well. It's just there's too much stuff to watch. We do this podcast. We also watch films outside of that. There are so many shows. Trash TV. Right. Love is blind. It's (laughs) just even though his shows are of such a high caliber, I do not have 10 hours. I just don't. And I feel like this easily could have been adapted into a 10-episode miniseries. Well, and unfortunately, this series aged into that peak, okay, this is the last one, let's split it into two movies yep. issues. Where, okay, and, and honestly, I do not remember if I've seen the second or third movies. I don't remember. I don't think I have. But after reading Mockingjay... It's slightly longer. Like, it's like Harry Potter, where each book gets a little longer than its predecessor. Right. But I don't think it needed two movies. Absolutely not. <laughs> and I- and this, like like we said, I mean, this, this happened with The Hobbit. This happened with Harry Potter. This happened with Twilight. This it, it just became this thing where it was like, oh, let's make this not only a cool event, we're going to make it a double cool event. And it was such, it's really just a cash grab. Right. It's like the most... <laughs> openly corporate right. thing ever. Like, the studios aren't lying to you. We all know why movies are split in two like that. Yeah, It's to get the most profits. Right. And it's just, like, such... It's the antithesis of what all creators want mm-hmm. out of adaptations. Mm-hmm. Especially what we want out of out of our movie adaptations. Yeah, and I, I think, like, going back to your original point, I think The Hunger Games, while it cut out a few little things, it doesn't feel like I'm missing those things and it doesn't feel like 
there should have been any more to the movie. Yeah. Agreed. I like it as an adaptation. I think it's pretty perfect as an adaptation. However, there are some directorial decisions made that really bug me infamously the shaky cam in this movie. Yes. I I can't get on board with it. It's not good. I'm not going to make any excuses for it. It's poor. Mm. And I don't think it's a result of a bad cinematographer. I just think the decision to go that shaky cam... The Bourne movies were big during these times, like Bourne Identity, Bourne Supremacy, Bourne Ultimatum. Those were huge during this time. Also based on book. Right. And so many action movies tried to replicate that style. Mm. And everyone misses the point. You shouldn't... Shakiness doesn't add authenticity to the picture. It just makes action harder to decipher and to understand what is going on. And it's pretty immediate uh, in this movie when they cut to District 12. Mm -hmm. And it's just shots of people, you know, walking to the mine, cooking over a stove. It's really poorly done. And I'm not a fan of the shaky cam. Also, extreme Mm close-ups. There's a lot of extreme close-ups, especially in the first half of the film. Years later, researching the film, I come to realize that even though this is a quote-unquote big-budget movie. It was produced by Lionsgate, Mm. which is not a part of the big six studios. It's Lionsgate up in this time really only produced small horror movies, and the only big hit they had were the Saw movies. Mm. And they produced the first Saw movie for about a million dollars. That was a surprise hit and made like a hundred million. But even still, by 2012, Lionsgate was not a huge studio. So they had $80 million to produce this movie, which, yes, is a lot of money on its face, but I think for the scope that Suzanne Collins set up in her novel, and by the way, Suzanne Collins has a co-writing screenplay credit for the movie, it's always good when an author Mm. adapts their own work. Well, I shouldn't say always, but most of the time, that's a good sign. She speaks pretty glowingly about the production team. In a few interviews, yeah. Gary Ross also co-wrote the screenplay. But $80 million, in my opinion, is actually quite low for a film of Mm. this scope. And to be honest, in the FX, you can tell. Right. (laughs) But it was of the time, and I'm sure they had a huge FX budget, but those do not age well, (laughs) unfortunately. I mean, this is an epic story with huge set pieces. An entirely different North America is built. Right. And for $80 million, you can make 10 small independent movies. You could make like 10 whiplashes, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but for a film of this scope, it was described as a big budget that was stretched thin. So you can see that in the film. There's a ton of close-ups. A lot of the sets, they don't show everything Mm -hmm. because it's either CGI'd or they just didn't have a set. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of shaky cam, which is one part to block out the extreme violence because they know they wanted a PG-13 rating, so they can't show everything. Although, the very next film, Catching Fire, director Francis Lawrence didn't do shaky cam. All he did was just didn't include blood, Mm -hmm. and they achieved the same thing. So subsequent movies proved that the shaking cam was not necessary 
And then I have some problems with the CGI, like you do, the, the whole fire scene with the fireballs. In the book, it is so thrilling and mm. exciting, and the movie, I don't think it, it brings its A-game in terms mm. of the rendering. Perhaps they are pushed for time, the VFX artists, that's very common, but I don't think it looked good. And then stuff like when Katniss shoots the apple bag so she can blow up the whole career district's supplies. Mm-hmm. That was a trap. They they do this false slow-mo cam on it, and it looks very blurry. It looks bad. Yeah. It's one of those things, like, it would be really cool to see a remastered version of this. And a lot of times when we think of remastering, we think about cleaning up physical film. Yeah. Of, you know, pops and hairs and... When we think about remastered editions, a lot of times we think about cleaning up physical film of imperfections, like scratches and pops or whatever on the film. Mm -hmm. But with this, it'd be kind of cool with today's technology. And it's a... Lionsgate has money lying around, I'm sure. They could release like a really cool version of these that has updated graphics. Yeah, for sure. I would love to see that. Who knows if that would ever happened i mean they did it with star wars and it made the movies worse so they'd have to be (laughs) they'd have to be careful about how much they actually retouched well star wars george lucas just added stuff that's what i'm saying but but i don't i don't that's what i'm saying they have to be careful i don't want anything added i just want them to like increase the quality of the cgi right yeah so that's basically my thoughts on the film i think it's very faithful i loved how it was translated and a lot of the storytelling it's well done there are some clunky lines of exposition here Mm. and there but for the most part extremely streamlined we say this all the time cut the fluff that is precisely what the film does Mm -hmm. i could have watched more of it Mm -hmm. to be frank and catching fire is like six minutes longer and that's kind of the sweet spot in Mm. my opinion back to the first movie though a great adaptation with some poor directorial decisions and slightly less than perfect vfx okay so it's interesting that you bring this up because I have a slight, I agree with you. I slightly disagree about the shaky cam. I picked up very quickly that maybe not the budget side of things, because that's really interesting to figure out now that like the reason they had close-ups and the reason they didn't show things up close in different moments is because of their lack of budget. But what I think is cool is in the book, especially District 12, but most of the other districts are like very poor. Yeah. And so I like the idea that there's like this found footage at some point that gets sort of rediscovered. Mm-hmm. It did bother me. And in fact, we actually just watched this movie called Dungeons and Dragons last night that also did a terrible job with shaky cam. It's kind of an action movie. And there were a couple points where people were riding horses and I literally couldn't focus on the actor's faces because the camera was so shaky. (laughs) And that started to bother me in the Hunger Games after a certain point. Because I think it's that idea if you have a restriction, like how can you use that to your benefit? So the restriction of budget would mean like you could do shaky cam and a bunch of up close and you can kind of make it seem like it's found footage because of the time that we're talking about in the situation. But it did start to bother me by the end because there's a lot of like blurring too. And there's a lot of like slow motion. And I don't know why they decided to do that because it does end up making it look cheaper and worse. Yeah, And it, it becomes distracting where I think it could have been kind of like 
a nice touch to extend the idea that we're in a dystopia. Yeah. But instead it became this like, oh, they're doing it because they have a lower budget. Right. And they so it's disappointing, but I think they could have used it better. Oh, just yeah. just didn't execute well. I certainly agree with you. I, I In theory, the yeah. cinema verite style, which is that raw, in-your-face documentary style, could work to accentuate the themes. In this case, it works against it. Well, and you know what's kind of fun, too? This line is not in the book, but I love when... we At some point, we have to talk about the casting choices because mm-hmm. I think this movie is inspired. Yeah. But there's a moment when Woody Harrelson's character, who's named Hamish, he looks at Katniss and he's like, it's a television show. And I think that's perfect to, to yeah. like bring that together. But at the same time, it does kind of... like. You know, it'd be really interesting is if they had like a, a little bit lighter handed found footage feel of the stuff with the Hunger Games. And then when you're in the Capitol, they did this a little bit, but it could have been a little bit more produced. Like I know it's produced and it definitely comes off as a different tone, but I want those tones to be even more exaggerated right. because that's what really comes through in the book is like the wealth and the excess that the capital has access to versus what the other districts have. And I just wish that was even more exaggerated to show like what a television show it is. Because for example, when we're in the Hunger Games, it shouldn't be found footage. That footage was used as a television show. Yeah. So that should be crystal clear. That should be as gory as they could have gotten to achieve a PG-13 film. But because of the shaky cam, then it starts. you start to question, well, that wasn't necessarily an artistic choice. That was a choice that they had to make because of budget. Budget or a stylist choice pushed to the extreme. You know what movie accurately critiques reality shows and does exactly what you said this movie should do? Truman Show? Yep, Truman Show. <laughs> yeah. A huge majority of that movie is angles from the hidden cameras. Right, the, yeah. and we get a little bit of that with Katniss, and they got a little bit creative, like when there's a camera in the tree, mm-hmm. but, but give us more of that and make sure that that, again, is the artistic choice of understanding who is filming Katniss, what's their motivation, and then execute on that idea. It just becomes a little bit muddled because they didn't execute it. I agree. Perfectly. And speaking of that control room, so that's a big change that the movie makes. As you stated earlier, the book is all through Katniss's POV. The movie shows us the game maker, Seneca Crane, who's only really mentioned in name in the first book, I believe. Right, he comes back in the second, but then dies. So he's not a huge character. Right, whereas in the film, he is our main antagonist. Well, you come to realize he's he's a puppet for President Snow, who, uh, even though Donald Sutherland only has about 10 minutes of screen time, is a huge presence in the movie, whereas in the book, he is also kind of in name only. Very rarely does he pop up. Mm -hmm. So all the scenes between Seneca Crane, played by Wes Bentley, sporting an incredible beard. That's his real beard that was cut to look that way. Love. That's not makeup. It's real. Love. Can uh, you do that with your beard? <laughs> uh, I don't, it's not as full as his. That's the problem. I disagree, but I'd love to see it in you. Seneca Grain Halloween? Oh, maybe. maybe. <laughs> I'll paint myself and be PETA. Right. <laughs> Which we'll have to talk about later too. Oh, PETA's yeah. reveal. We'll talk about that. That was funny. But yeah, so all the scenes between Seneca and President Snow 
were new uh, to the movie, an invention of the movie, and they were added to establish the growing tensions in Penem between the people and the government. Likewise, the scenes with Caesar Flickerman and Claudius Templesmith uh, narrating the whole games were added. Those are not in the book, and those were added to provide exposition and, and more wor- world building for the games. So, even though I realized that those scenes like it's purely for exposition to kind of explain what's going on. I think it's brilliant because in the book, you get Katniss's whole narration. You don't have that in the film, but the film has kind of a perfect, very organic way to deal out all this info. Like yeah. you, you know through Seneca Crane that President Snow is like, hey, Katniss is a problem. Her resilience might lead to some sort of rebellion and why do we have these games in the first place? Hope. We need to give people hope that maybe we could, you know, rise up against the government, but not too much hope to where it could become a reality. Yeah, no, I actually really love, again, that first piece that they take the POV away from Katniss because I think she does get a little bit grating after a while, sure. just trying to be being inside of a teen's mind. Like Weren't Jesus we Christ. All that way? Yeah, um, I don't want to go back to my teen years. Never. <laughs> but the other thing I really love about the addition of Snow as the puppet master is that we really get to know him as a tyrant. Yes. And that's certainly I mean, the second book came out a year after the first book. So we knew or at least the people who are buying the rights or interested in the rights knew that this was going to be at least a, a two-part series. Yeah. But like, I I think that's a really interesting way of setting up the next book because Snow does have such a massive presence in book two and three. Yeah. I guess technically he's absent because they're hunting him, but yeah. he's the reason the Capitol has all the power. So I really love... Actually, I just watched this kind of short docuseries on Netflix called How to Become a Tyrant, which was totally unrelated to reading these books. But that specific tactic or the specific tactics that they talk across that like six episode series really comes through his character. Yeah. And part of it is because Donald Sutherland is like an incredible fucking actor. Yeah. And again, this goes back to casting, but he's so menacing and he doesn't have that many lines, but he's fucking scary. And you know he means business in those little asides that he has with Seneca Crane. And the decision to have him clipping flowers is so brilliant because that's what all brilliant directors do to try to show you how menacing a villain is is to show them doing something cute and harmless, but what they're saying is profoundly evil. Well, something that I did not think about because that scene wasn't in the book, but I actually made an immediate connection between Snow and the Queen of Hearts in Alice in Wonderland. Because when he's walking around his garden, he has rose bushes, but they look more like trees, which is kind of what the Queen of Hearts represents. So I started doing that association in my mind. And a lot of it, like the Queen of Hearts also represents the adult figure that punishes children like Alice Mm -hmm. for no good reason. And I think that whether that was subconscious, a subconscious choice or whether that was an artistic choice that they made because they were thinking of like his symbolism, especially in book two, becomes those roses and like the smell of roses 
the coying sweet smell of roses. Mm -hmm. I feel like that has to have been some kind of homage to Alice in Wonderland. Because again, it's like that theme of children are just kind of trying to do what they want. But as they start to age, you come up against the adult world. And that's exactly what Alice is coming up against when she goes on her journey. So I think that like has to be a little bit of mirroring of that theme in imagery. Right. And I think that speaks to why Suzanne Collins made the decision for the Hunger Games to be fought by children. Because instead of adults, right, who have already lived a substantial part of their lives, I think Suzanne Collins made the decision for President Snow to only reap children because children have their lives ahead of them. They're, you know, they're bright-eyed, they think they're the center of the universe, so to give them, in the back of their mind, the anxiety of, hey, every year I might be picked to die, that squashes all potential hope for having a good life. Totally. Even if they're never picked, as soon as they turn 19, the rest of their lives, they're definitely going to have PTSD from just every year of going to the reapings. No, for sure. And that really is given a face when we start to see Prim, Katniss's younger sister. But I want to say two things about that. Even if they're not reaped, number one, they always know there's a quell. So there could be a twist. They could be reaped, Mm. even as an adult. True. And the second thing is that we learn in the first book, and especially the second, when Katniss and Peeta lie and say that she's actually pregnant, we learn very early that Katniss is always concerned. And actually one of the first lines in the movie is Katniss saying, I'm never having kids to Gail, because the concern is, again, even if you age out as a 19-year-old, you could have kids that are reaped. So you're completely right. You don't escape the anxiety. Even if you aren't touched by going to the Hunger Games, you know someone who's going to go. Yes. Almost certainly, because the districts are big, but they're not huge. Exactly. Right. Yeah. The District 12, even though it's supposed to be the the poorest district, is kind of seemed like a town instead of a whole area of the country. Well, yeah. I mean, when they're... That's one thing that is a little bit silly. I think the population should have been a little bit bigger. Right. But for budget reasons. For budget reasons. But like when they do the reaping, it's like there are like a hundred kids. That's it. (laughs) Like, And it's funny. When I was looking for my District 9 ID, I pulled out a lot of stuff from high school. Like I graduated with a group of like 800 kids and I'm like that was only one grade you know so it's I think it could have been a little bigger but I understand I know I I had that thought too I'm like that's it yeah (laughs) yeah which I mean also I mean it's that increases your anxiety of course when there are only like a hundred names Prim's name coming out of the bowl is fairly good chance yeah but it was a little it was a little small yeah (laughs) tiny so casting Let's finally get into the meat of it all. So what character do you want to start with? Take your pick. I mean, okay. Love Woody Harrelson. I don't think I've ever seen anything that he's in that I have not liked. (laughs) Yeah. Great actor. Great role. They should have just kept him bald. He's a famously bald actor. It's super distracting. The wig is not great, and also Woody Harrelson with that wig, it seems too bright and young for his age, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's weird to call hair young looking, but it just didn't fit, in my opinion, even for the dystopian time period. Yeah. Is it a wig? Yeah. It's a full wig? He's bald, yeah. Uh, 
Well, I know, but like, I, you know, they could have had him grow out the back of his hair. I don't no, know. Yeah, but, it's full, full fake. Yeah. Um, and I think the visualization of the character is obviously that he's drunk all the time, but then like pull it back or something and have it longer Mm. because it's in his hair, it's in his face all the fucking time. And it's really (laughs) distracting. Like it distracts from his great performance. So it does really bother me. But a really rich character. He's the only winner from district 12. Correct. Correct. Until Katniss, of course, but. And. Oh, and Peta. Sorry, I forgot about Peta. Easy to forget. <laughs> kind of easy to forget. It's a little forgettable. <laughs> we'll get to Peta bread in a second. <laughs> Peta bread. Very rich character in Hamish. Someone with intense PTSD from his quarter quell. He kind of accidentally won because he was one of two, and the last person threw an axe at him, and it bounced off a force field and killed her. So the capital thought that it was defiant against them so they killed his whole family or something like that yeah that part is a little weird but i guess the capital doesn't really need to have any rationale behind their violent acts but it is a little a little contrived exactly yeah but it's really well done it's hard to play drunk convincingly Mm -hmm. and i think the movie cuts back on his alcoholism a little bit like he's super drunk in the first scene but then mm. later scenes he gets more sober as the games get closer and then during the games he's he doesn't seem to be all too drunk so he seems like a really noble mentor and someone who i'd love to have someone who he actually does have some nuggets of advice that come in handy mainly it's to make everyone like her so she can get sponsors, Katniss, mm-hmm. that is. And Katniss, her, a big part of her character is that she's uncomfortable public speaking in front of crowds, expressing her emotions because of the death of her father and, and all the tragedy in her life. She's taught herself to never show any emotion. Mm-hmm. So Conceal, don't feel, as Frozen has taught us. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, Woody Harrelson, incredible actor. Josh Hutcherson as Peter Malark. Oh, I- he was such a commodity in the early 2000s. Yeah. And we talked about him in our episode on Bridge to Terabithia. Mm-hmm. He was in so many goddamn movies in the Zathura. early 2000s. Zathura. I'm not familiar with that one. <laughs> it's like a sister sequel to Jumanji. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, Never not directly related, Never but anyways. But he is an interesting choice. I would say we can talk about the casting of Jennifer Lawrence and Josh Hutcherson at the same time. Yeah. Because you really have to have some type of chemistry. And it waxes and wanes for me, I think, in the movie. Like, the interesting thing about the books is that Suzanne Collins, like, really leans into the whole thing about how Katniss resists being around him a little, a little, the lady doth protest a little too much mm-hmm. uh, in the books. But I think it's really interesting that Katniss probably would have liked Peta more if she wasn't forced to love him. Yeah. I think they really could have. And, and part of that is because part of her complex feelings towards Peta is because he saved her life and her family's life at one point by throwing her burned loaves of bread yeah. when she was like, 12 so part of that resistance to him is like the shame and the fact that they don't she doesn't really want to bring it up with him when they first meet up again right and and again that piece that 
she doesn't want to be a pawn. Like yeah. she doesn't want to play the card, the lover, the star-crossed lover card, because she knows it's all for the capital's consumption. Yes, like that. But like, I don't know that they have the greatest on-screen chemistry, or maybe they weren't. I don't want to say they're bad actors because I don't think they're terrible to watch. I just don't know that they can carry the complexity of that relationship yeah. together. Well, in the book, Peta is very charismatic in front of the cameras. Yeah. And Josh Hutcherson doesn't really bring that to the table. Yeah, I wanted more of that. Like, I, I kind of get glimpses of it. But he, I don't know, again, maybe it's because he was young or whatever, but... Stanley Tucci really eclipses him when he's on the stage. And I don't feel that he has the presence to match Caesar. And that's a big disappointment because Stanley Tucci, who is one of my favorite actors, he's so fucking talented. To be fair, he eclipses everyone. He does. No matter the role. (laughs) And you know what? We had a running joke while we were watching the movie because for some reason they add like a co-host every once in a while to the announcing of the hunger games and that guy just sits behind the desk and literally says nothing and stanley tucci just like walks all over him during those performances but it is true it really does unfortunately detract from Peta's character who's so innately good at pleasing the crowds that I just don't feel that... Like, that is a key piece. That is a key reason that both of them survive is because he can convince the crowd that he loves Katniss, which is true, but also he understands the the manipulation propaganda side of it. And I just don't think that that comes through with Josh Hutcherson's performance, even though, like... I don't want to not give him credit because he is a good actor. I just don't know that that piece of pita came out through his performance. The piece of pita bread was consumed. And also Suzanne <laughs> Collins, like, why did you name this fucker pita? That's, that's such a weird, like, why didn't you just name him like baguette? <laughs> like, it's just yeah. so, it's a weird choice because it's so on the nose. Yeah. It's like naming someone from the electronics district calculator. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, I have a, I have a few things in response. First thing, how dare you besmirch Toby Jones, Tony winning actor, Toby Jones, who played Claudius, uh, Caesar's little assistant there. Okay. Or a co-host. Did they give him any lines? It's not my fault. A few. (laughs) (laughs) That's not my fault. Um, second thing. It's not that he's a bad actor. They just didn't use him. And yeah. he was distracting. He announced like the rule changes with the, you know, that there could be two winners. Or we one. didn't see his face while he did that. That's true. <laughs> so second thing, you did mention a difference between Caesar in the movie and the book. So in the movie, he is like incredibly friendly with all the tributes on stage and like supports all of them and like kind of gives hope to all of them mm. like like he points out their strengths and mm. says like oh you're gonna do well i wish you well he's so much more supportive and i think it's kind of like a sweet even though he probably has ulterior motives or doesn't really care right it's it's kind of gives the character more dimension like he he know, is aware that it's all a show but he still wants to have these kids go in with some sense that they can accomplish something and maybe win. Right. You know? Well, well, the, the point of the press tour, basically, is to market the kids to the sponsors. Exactly. And so he would never want to downplay... 
because it's it's like that competitive marketing where if one succeeds, you want to push the others to be even more successful because then the people who are betting on the games are going to make more money. Like that's that's the point of the press tour before the Hunger Games. Yeah. Last thing, Josh Hutcherson's performance. I'll say it, I don't think he's great in general. Blanket statement, I don't think he's great. And in theory, he's a good PETA, but I think the fact that they cast Liam Hemsworth as Gale, who, despite not being good at delivering lines in an American accent, he's just such a hunk compared to Josh Hutcherson. No no shade against Josh Hutcherson. I mean... I think he's very cute. Right. Yeah, Josh Hutcherson is cute, but Liam Hemsworth... I mean, he's a Hemsworth. He's a, he's a Hemsworth. <laughs> and he's Australian, so. Right. And, you know, Chris Hemsworth has the acting chops and the looks, whereas Liam Hemsworth just has the looks. <laughs> uh, well, in this movie. I, I'm sure. I don't think I've seen him in anything yeah, else. Yeah, I'm sure he's a good guy outside of this. But knowing how Jennifer Lawrence looks, too, you know, who was a model before she was an actor. Was she really? Yeah, that's how she was discovered. It kind of makes the love triangle a little bit silly when you compare. Peta to Gale. And I know that's kind of the point, right? In the book, Katniss explicitly says, I'm putting on this romance for the cameras. And, like, she, and every time she makes a move under that guise, she feels bad about Gale seeing it. Right. Whereas it's a little bit left up to your interpretation at the end of the movie. Like there's no, there's a scene at the end of the book where Katniss says to Peta that it was all a show. It didn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. And Peta's super sad. In the movie, you don't know. You don't know if Katniss kind of is still on the Gale side or still on the Peta side. And it's just like, it's Liam Hemsworth. I right. Mean, and and their, their characters are rightfully developed in polar opposite directions in the book too. Like Peta's kind of characterized as the soft, the baker's son. Like, that's what they call him. And, like, you know, he always has access to food, so he doesn't have to really try. Whereas Gale, who is more like Katniss, like, he's self-sufficient. He can go out and kill what he wants. He can hunt. He Like, he he's always pushing back. Like, he has no filter against the capital. So he's this free thinker as well. And then to add on top of that that it's Liam Hemsworth... It's like, <laughs> it like at least give Peta something, and yeah. and then he basically like so we can talk about the Peta reveal in the Hunger Games arena, yeah. Where like again, it's just like taking away any type of redeeming quality. A reveal so silly that <laughs> I understand he's mean. a baker and he explains that he decorates all the cakes, but to see his little face. <laughs> His little eyes, like in the theater, I distinctly remember laughs, and I laughed too. And then we laughed last night when we watched it. Yeah, Yeah. and like at least give us a little more background. We never see a cake that Peta designs. (laughs) We never, he never goes into like you know. It's really funny too. Like there's this huge. I would say fad of making realistic cakes on TikTok. And there's even a fucking, well, but this, this is a very different thing where cake boss is like the decorator, but like the realistic cakes, because Mm. there's literally a show on Netflix called, is it cake? This is a huge fad right now. (laughs) And so like, give us a little something about how PETA, like, again, show us a cake that PETA has created. But even that, okay, I'm, I'm getting a little deep in this, but it's like who in district 12 could afford a fucking, (laughs) 
decorated cake. And it's like, for a how birthday. did he do that? And why is he lying? Like, go. Uh, the the stronger argument. <laughs> hear me out. The stronger argument, which they end up developing a little bit further in the later books is that Peta is an artist. Now right. that makes more sense. I don't know why the whole cake thing is really pushed because it's it's kind of a weak thing. And like, again, the bakery, like everything in District 12 is about survival. Like it, it makes more sense that Peta would be interested in art and maybe he couldn't pursue art because he has to take over the bakery when he grows up. Like that's a more compelling idea storyline in this universe. Right. The whole cake thing is stupid. It doesn't explain why he knows how to like do shading in bark <laughs> and trees. On himself. He's, where was the mirror? Did he have a mirror? It's it's just a little nuts. And the visual is just funny. And it the just, visual it just is looks really funny. funny. Yeah. Right. And he doesn't even do it to his whole... His whole body isn't even camouflaged. It's like just his face. And then he moves and he's just like under a rock. <laughs> it is just a little silly. So back to our original point. Give PETA something. Yeah. Now, I think it would be interesting if we had PETA... I don't know at the end of this movie, and, and honestly, I don't remember what happens in the second movie, so maybe this happens, but the idea that PETA uses the narrative of them being star-crossed lovers as revenge against Katniss because he's always he always has loved her, yeah. and he always has known that she has never cared or even noticed him before. So if he were to use, because he clearly has an understanding of how propaganda works, if he used the idea of like saying that she's pregnant and pushing that narrative to his benefit, mm. that would make PETA a little bit of a villain, but more of a complex character. And I just feel like PETA's character is a little one single note, like one note. In both the book and movie? A little bit. Okay. In the book, he's still more compelling because he's like more engaging, yeah. period. Like he's given more to do. Sure. But like, I need. I don't know. I, I still hesitate to say Josh Hutcherson is not a good actor. Maybe it was a bad cast. He also just doesn't have a lot, too many scenes. But give him something else Yeah. to compete with Gail. I think he's a good actor. She just didn't... It was a bad performance. Sure. And coincidentally with Gail, I think that Liam Hemsworth is a good actor given the right roles. I just really haven't seen him in anything effective except for this one Western movie. I actually forget the name of it. But yeah, he's not really utilized well. It seems like he was cast because his connection to his brother and mm. just his hunky looks. Mm -hmm. They needed a, a huge hunk. But he doesn't have too many scenes, too. That's something that the book just had... They don't really change his character. He just has more scenes to do. Scenes are cut. Yeah. yeah. Then most of his role when The Hunger Games starts is just reaction shots of him watching Katniss kiss Peeta and of him being kind of brooding, but he doesn't want to show emotion. Yeah. Yeah. Continuing on with casting, our boy Lenny Kravitz. So okay. So this is something... Did not remember this from the first time I Crazy. might have watched it. Lenny Kravitz, one of my favorite artists out there. Laura knows this, but a CD we have on repeat. That's right. We listen to CDs. Yeah, in our we car. do. We have a lot yep. of CDs. <laughs> Early 2000s, baby. We want to relive Living, those times. Yeah. But one of my favorite CDs of all time, 
and I can credit our our, excuse me and let's credit my older brother Matt he's the one who in high school he listened to the CD all the time it's it's Lenny Kravitz's greatest hits yeah right I know it's kind of a cop-out to say your favorite album is a greatest hits album but it's just the truth yeah Lenny Kravitz is great and he has so many Lenny Kravitz isms right he in certain songs he'll just he'll just He'll just riff, and yeah. it's like that is so him. It's good, but sometimes it's funny. Yeah. Is he a good actor? Not really. But... Has he been in much else? No. Like, why was he's, he cast in this? It's such a weird moment. Yeah, I think, I think I heard the story is like Jennifer Lawrence was friends with Zoe Kravitz. I think that is so random. Yeah, random. <laughs> She's just like, does your dad want a job? Yeah. <laughs> what he's like in between tours yeah is he good in the role yes is his performance great not not particularly but i think he adapts it well from the book the uh, cinna is pretty much adapted word for word yeah. page by page like he his look is the same whereas everyone in the capital is flamboyant cinna is stripped down just a, a black t-shirt black pants and the only really i'm flare... surprised he's wearing a shirt to be honest right. knowing lenny Kravitz. <laughs> yeah i literally watched <laughs> he posted to his instagram yesterday he's walking down the street he goes it's scarf season it's literally the biggest Shut scarf with no shirt Oh, no, with a shirt. Oh, he is wearing a shirt. But the scarf is the size of a human body. (laughs) It's bigger than him. It's like on the ground. He is such an interesting guy. I read his memoir about a year ago, and his whole thing is like health. Like he's vegan. It's working for him. Right. The guy looks like he's fucking 40 years old, and he's like 68. Yeah, he's he's almost 70 years old, and he looks like he's in his 40s. It's nuts. Seriously. But in the book, Collins mentions that the only flare on Cinna is the golden eyeliner kind mm. of around his lashes. And that's the same in the movie. He does have a very relaxing, calming speaking voice. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what you needed for this character. Someone who supports Kat- Katniss and Peeta, but especially Katniss, with his life out of nowhere. And he doesn't need to do this, but... His whole girl on fire motif is what really supports Katniss, adds to her character, and later on more or less leads to the rebellion to have this figurehead, the, the girl on fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, love his character in the book. He He's like, I guess he's like PETA in that he understands, like he's lived in the capital culture his entire life, so he understands what he's supposed to do with his costumes. And I... We've talked about this before, but I think costume designers, costume artists are very underappreciated parts of film production. And I love that we just randomly get this beautiful portrayal of literally what costume designers do. They have to identify the key components of a character and then make that a physical manifestation in in their costume. And if a particular costume is eye-catching and stands out for the rest, there needs to be a reason Mm -hmm. for that. And interestingly, which goes against this, this is something that like really bothered me about the movie. So the book, like multiple times, at least twice, states that Katniss's hairstyle 
is based on the braid, like the simple braid that her mom puts in her hairstyle for the day of the reaping. Mm. And it actually really pissed me off that her hair is like very exaggerated braids Mm. in the ceremony, like the introduction ceremony when they come through on those like chariots to be presented as the tributes to President Snow. It actually really bothered me that her hair wasn't what her mother did because Cinna literally even has her show him how to braid the hair the way her mom did. Yeah. Because he wants it to be like simple but powerful. And that was not included in her final look for that night, which like really bothered me. But I thought for some reason I had in my head that Cinna's character was played by Billy Porter. I don't know why I had that in my head, but I was very shocked when (laughs) Lenny Kravitz came on and I was like, what? Wait, like that is not who I thought was in this role. But I think he does a good job. Like, honestly, I know that maybe he's not the greatest actor in the world, but the thing that I found surprising was like, it wasn't distracting that it was Lenny Kravitz. Right. And I think that that, if anything, says a lot about his performance because he is kind of a quirky guy in real life, but he doesn't bring any of that to the role. Mm -hmm. And like, I think that that's something that iconic celebrities can fall into is like, they don't really break out of who they are in real life Mm -hmm. in their characters. But I think he's so reserved that I thought he did a a very good job being Senna, yeah. in my perspective. Yeah. Yeah, he, he's good. And I think the scene with him looking on as Katniss goes up the tube, I think is touching. Yeah, and that, that kind of foreshadows what happens in book, I think like... Two. I think book two, yeah. right? When he's basically like killed... Yeah, spoilers. While she's yeah. <laughs> trapped in that tube and she can't do anything. because yes. she's Oh, because she's going into the arena for the second time. So yeah, it's definitely book two. Yeah. Yeah, so it makes that all more... Uh, depressing mm-hmm. to sit, to watch this movie already reading the second book and watching the second movie knowing that he pushes his message of rebellion a little bit uh, too far mm-hmm. so yeah a tragic he steps out of line kind of yep. and, and he gets killed for it yeah tragic character but always love to see Lenny Kravitz in anything mm-hmm. oh yeah and we will listen to that CD for the rest of our days. I'm not going to tell anyone what Lenny Kravitz song is my go-to karaoke song, but <laughs> my go-to karaoke song is definitely a Lenny Kravitz staple. But if I tell people, they're going to steal it. So I'm not going to say about <laughs> it on this podcast. But we were also like, one of our favorite songs is Let Love Rule. Gosh, we're, and then, <laughs> we're hitting those notes. But then it was funny because then I was like, girl. Girl on fire. I really wish he had sung that to her while she was going up the tube. Yeah. Really wish he had just like swung a guitar out from behind his back and like ripped into that song when she was getting taken yeah. away. Pan Am woman. <laughs> Get some bread. She's a Pan Am woman. <laughs> uh, you know what another thing that's different about the books? What? Prim's cat is a tabby cat, and it's a black cat in the movie. That bothered me. That's Why? just one of those little things. It's just one of those little things. Like, just fucking get an orange cat instead of a black cat. Oh. Like, what? But black cats maybe are symbolic. Maybe. They're... But it's, it's like black and white. It's not like a black cat. It's not like a statement. It's an... I think it's something that was overlooked. I blame PETA. They probably were like, these orange tabbies are... They're endangered, and you can't have them on set. Uh, um, okay, that's, a, that's so, a weird stance for me to take that I don't like Peter. <laughs> <laughs> it is, because he's not bad. 
Um, I don't know where that came from. Uh, any last differences before we get into so, final thoughts? So a couple things about casting. I thought the other tributes were pretty damn good. Yes. They're intense. A couple of them are a little bit caricaturized. Like there's one girl, I don't remember what district she's from, but she's like really short with black hair and she's killed by Thresh. Uh, Clove. Clove yeah. is her name. Okay. She's a little bit one note. She's just like rolling her eyes during the whole movie. I'm just like, get out of here. You yeah. little teen. Where's lover boy? Yeah. <laughs> like, unfortunately not the greatest. Uh, hopefully she has grown and has yeah, a wonderful career that's now. Isabella uh, Furman. She starred in the Orphan movies. Oh, now that you say that, I can those see are actually her. Those are pretty fun. They're not great, but they, they're they kind of tongue-in-cheek, so I like them. Okay, I, I, can see, I can see her face now that you say that. That's like, yeah, but she's a little one-note. Uh, Kato, I think, yes. actually gets a pretty good character arc by the end. Like, yeah. He's kind of annoying because he's just like this like macho, like... He's, he's what they call a uh, career, which is another cool yeah. use of language, which it's, means they've been trained as a tribute basically from day one. It's not explained in the movie, only implied. But I True. think the storytelling is well-constructed where you kind of pick up that, oh, the tributes from one and two are, they have Here been training their whole lives. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah. So like he's a little bit one note until the very end when he tries to get Katniss to kind of he's putting pressure on Katniss to shoot him and then he's going to kill Peta because he's got him like by the neck on the cornucopia in the very end. Yeah. Another thing they don't explain are the mutts mm-hmm. that come to attack them in the very end. That but... was that was a change that I liked. I don't think it really added anything to explain that the mutts were constructed from the DNA of the mm. fallen tributes. We already know that the whole capital is, you know, tyrannical yeah. and corrupted and evil. Yeah. That's a acceptable change and and the thought that rue comes back as a rabid dog yeah (laughs) it's a little bit intense like the the point has been made right Right. yeah Yeah. so uh but kato honestly like okay so he looked familiar to me i think the reason i know his face is because i've seen grown-ups too and that's a long story about why i've seen (laughs) grown-ups it's a long long story i don't want to get into it but i recognized him (laughs) and then i looked him up and he was like oh that kid plays brayden moving on (laughs) um he is good in the very end. And it's one of those really tricky moments where a character is a piece of shit the whole storyline until they're like dying or they're backed into a corner. And then you see how desperate yeah. that facade is throughout his whole life. Like this kid is 16, maybe 18, and he's been trained his whole life to kill. And now he's actually facing something that he wouldn't allow himself to face which is that he's actually not going to win these hunger games and like when Katniss shoots him in the end like it's really sad yeah and I think that that turn as an actor as a young actor he delivers right he convincingly looks injured and desperate and his whole little speech he gives it's not in the book he basically says I'm dead anyways I didn't realize that until now like, I've been training for this my whole life, and now I've come to fail. So I am dead, because all I am is this game. It's really nuanced. It's really good. And you get all of that, all that character development in a few seconds. It's yeah, really... desperate seconds. Really well told. I, yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah, Kato's great. Um, Rue, obviously Rue, heartbreaking, but she's great. Yeah, starring a young Amanda Luh. 
That's not Amanda. Amanda Stenberg, who is great in the movie Bodies, 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 mm. which I watched on a flight a few months ago. Good movie. Really good movie. I recommend it. But yeah, a young Amanda Stenberg. Thresh has uh, played by Deo. Unfortunately, Akimi. barely has any screen time, but he's good. He's good. Levin Rambin, that's uh, who plays Glimmer. She's great in her little role. Yeah. All and then the... everyone else dies off screen, so right. we don't really know who they are. Yeah. And at first, when I saw it in the theaters, I didn't like how there's no diegetic sound when the Hunger Games start. You know, it's just soundtrack. But I like that years later. I think it's it's a subversion of your expectations. You think the games are going to start and you're going to hear all the violence, but instead the movie does the opposite of that, where it's just score. The score is done by James Newton Howard, who I'm hot and cold on this guy. He either has amazing scores, like this one, his score for 1917, but he also sometimes goes, it's a little too esoteric sometimes. Mm. Like the like Skyfall. He, Skyfall is a great film, but I don't necessarily like his score for that. It doesn't really feel like James Bond, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I think his work here, it's very minimal, but I like it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. At this point, Nicholas Bertel wasn't in the game yet, so he couldn't... <laughs> sure. <laughs> I bet he'd create a banging score. Well, he doesn't miss. Yeah. So that's don't miss. obvious. That guy don't miss. He doesn't. Last actor wanted to mention, Elizabeth Banks. Effie Trinket. Oh, she's fun. Great. Yeah. Straight from the page adaptation. No changes really to her character at all, but iconic, especially in the reaping scene. It's not that she is evil. She's just, she's so entrenched in the culture of excess that she doesn't really understand the stakes of it. Yeah. 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 Last fun fact I wanted to say, director Steven Soderbergh. You know, who directed the Ocean's Eleven, all the Ocean's film, uh, Let Them All Talk. He directed mm-hmm. I liked it Side Effects, yeah. uh, one of one of my favorite. I think that's one of the most underrated movies of all time, Side yeah. Effects. Yeah. For some reason, he directed the second unit scenes oh, for this that's film. that's so random. He's such a quirky... I, I, I love Steven Soderbergh. But yeah, Do you know specific scenes that he directed then? This is a change from the book. After Rue dies in the movie, we see a little revolt in District 11. Oh, yeah. That's another bit of foreshadowing they put in the first movie that doesn't happen yet. Right. So Steven Soderbergh directed that. Random. Yeah. And I think he directed the explosion scene with all their supplies as well, which is funny because he's not known for action. Hmm. He almost exclusively does dramas, like Mm. small indies. Mm. Well, I guess it's not indie if he does it for Warner Brothers, like all these movies (laughs) on HBO Max, but still, small budget, so he did those scenes. Gotcha. That is really interesting. Again, I'd be really interested to know how he ended up with that role, but good for him. (laughs) Yeah, did did great. Final ratings for the book and movie out of four stars, go. Um, for the book, I just want to shave a star because ultimately it is young adult lit. Uh And there are some things that really bugged me. Like if you're writing for a young audience, there are some things about Katniss that are just so cliche. I really wish Suzanne Collins had made the decision to stay away from them. For example, like there are three mentions of Katniss losing weight. And as a young girl, 
I would steer clear from comments about her being like thin. I, you know what I mean? I, uh-huh. they're just, and especially now, like as an adult looking back, they just, they still bother me because it's like, why do all of our female characters have to be like thin? Right. There's, there's that cliche. I uh-huh. hate it. And especially in a young adult literature book, I think there's no place for that kind of character description. Um, so I'm going to give it a 3.5 because I would definitely read these again. It's just, you know, they're not perfect, but Mm -hmm. fun nonetheless. For the movie, I'm just going to do three out of four because again, like they're not perfect, but for 2012, they're pretty good. I think it's like a pretty one-to-one. Yeah. It's a, like you were saying, it's a great adaptation. It's just not perfect in terms of like the tech yeah. side. It's not refined, which I think not Catching refined. Fire is refined. And I look forward to watching that because I don't think I've seen it. Maybe when we start watching it, I'll remember more. But I truly do not think that I have watched any of the following yeah. movies. I cannot wait for Catching Fire. I really like that. So, And I'm, <laughs> in doing this podcast, I'm back into Hunger Games. I feel like I'm in high school. No, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that leads into my ratings. I mean, the book is pretty much exactly what I want out of literature, even though it is young adult, but it was so easy to reread, in my case, re-listen. Very short book. Yeah, it's like 10 hours. Flew through it, so I really don't have any problems with it. I'd go 4 out of 4. The movie, I agree with you, is a 3 out of 4. A great adaptation just some stuff bugs me. It's like, ah, oh, you didn't get it perfect when you had such perfect source material. Mm-hmm. If slightly derivative, still pretty fun and well told. So yeah, three to four for the movie. Nice. All right. Well, the odds were in our favor in this one. I think we knocked it out of the park. Would you agree? Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> it was fun. Yeah, it, I, I was excited. Fun I, time. It feels like I've been preparing for this a long time because I read all three books and we watched the movie, uh, well, last night, but but you're, I was excited to talk about this one. You're a career podcaster. We are. Yeah. We will be back in a few weeks for our Film is Lit October. Film is Lit is covering it. That's right. All throughout the month of October, we're going to be covering oh gosh, the book, the legendary 1,200-page novel, and then its various adaptations. So the two episodes of its miniseries, and then the two movies, the recent movies. So, yeah, it is getting four episodes. Buckle up for that. As always, thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and follow if you want to, if you're not already. And we'll see you on the next one.